0: Well, considering the, some of the revelations in recent years about the treatment of prisoners in detention centers like, say, Guantanamo Bay and Cuba f- alone, like just places like that, there has been increasing public inquiry into our correctional systems in general, as well as public outcry as it relates to practices such as solitary confinement in particular. People becoming increasingly like, now. we can't do that anymore. Uh, A recent report on the psychological effects of solitary confinement by a professor at University of California, Craig Haney, delivered to the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee in 2012, he noted this. The severe deprivation and oppressive control conditions in these places may press the outer bounds of what most humans can psychologically tolerate. For a number of prisoners, those bounds are greatly exceeded. And the consequences of their long-term solitary confinement are truly extreme. Serious forms of mental illness can result from these experiences. Moreover, many prisoners become so desperate and despondent that they engage in self-mutilation, and as I noted early, a disturbingly high number resort to suicide. Peer-reviewed study entitled Social Relationships and Health, given in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior in 2011, added... Captors use isolation to torture prisoners of war. It's a drastic effect. Social isolation of otherwise healthy, well-functioning individuals eventually results in psychological and physical disintegration and even death. The reason I bring all all that up at all is simply to point out that what these and countless other studies have simply done is verified scientifically the truth of God's word that we have at the beginning of verse 18 in our passage. It is not good for a man, or any of us for that matter, to be alone. So last Sunday we began this new teaching series entitled Procurvum, a Latin word meaning to be curved outwards. And the whole idea around this Series is addressing the reality that everyone from psychologists to sociologists to self-help book authors agree with the Bible on, namely, that there's a problem. We got a problem. Something that is bringing about all this fighting, all this relational brokenness in this world that we see today between everyone from spouses to children and their parents to entire nations. But where the Bible differs is that rather than locating the source of that problem in uh, psychology in uh, the environment in family systems or, or historic injustices, any of these things, the, the Bible locates the source of the problem within us. It says it's in here, this inward curved nature, incurvato se in the Latin. This inward curved nation, nature of our hearts, that's the problem. And what we looked at last week exclusively was the events given to us in Genesis chapter three, uh, historically in Christian circles referred to as the fall, where we saw how uh, sin entered into the world through mankind's rebellion and the outward curved relationally healthy design that God made us with became broken, became distorted, curved, we became curved inward on ourselves. And the results of that inward curving was that we became both curved away from God as well as from one another. But the gospel hope we said offered in the very same passage was that God said he would provide a way to help reshape the curvature of our hearts outward once again from being inward and self-focused, outward once again to himself. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I would just highly recommend get on our YouTube iTunes page this week and, and listen to that message if you haven't heard it because it really is going to be Foundational for everywhere we go through this series now. Today, what we are going to look at from these passages in Genesis 2 as well as Ephesians 5 is one of the primary ways after the sending of God's Son that God provided to help reshape the curve of our hearts, namely marriage. That God has provided marriage as one of the primary ways after the sending of His Son to help reshape the distorted. Curvature of our hearts. Now, I need you to hear me say this if you're not currently married, if you have no plans to get to that anytime soon, or it seems that nobody's got any plans to get to that with you anytime soon, uh, that doesn't mean that there's nothing here for you this morning. That does not mean you can just check out and catch up on your Instagram feed for the next 30 minutes, any more than it means next week, married people are allowed to check out when we talk about singleness. There, there is a, a unique beauty in each one of these tools that God has given to help reshape our our heart's curvature. And one is in no way superior to the other in God's eyes, although we attach all kinds of of significance and baggage to those two things in our own culture. So for the unmarried person, if that's you here today, what I'm praying you'll gain from this message is either some insight into how you can be preparing yourself now to be a better-suited marriage partner in the future, if that's part of God's plan for you. Or even if it's not, that you might at least gain a greater understanding of the goodness of God's design in creating marriage and maybe just come to a greater appreciation of how God uses this tool to help reshape those of us who are married. If you are married, (laughs) I'm praying that maybe some of your current perspectives, maybe some of your current blocks, some of your current struggles with marriage might just be reshaped, reformed in some ways and and re-understood as we talk through God's design in marriage together this morning, what I pray all of us might see together are at least two things. I want to talk primarily this morning about how marriage is about curving us back towards one another. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But in closing, I do also want to talk about marriage and curving back towards God. Talk about both of these things, marriage and curving back towards one another, marriage and curving back towards God. So if you have closed your Bibles, would you open them again? Turn back to that passage in Genesis, first of all. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Follow along with me as we look more deeply at how God uses marriage to reshape the inward curvature of our hearts back outward as he originally designed us. Okay, so let's look first of all at marriage and curving back towards one another. Again, we'll spend the majority of our time here, so don't freak out when I go to a second point. Marriage and curving back towards one another. Now, I have no doubt at all that a moment ago when I said that, that marriage was something that God uses to curve our, heart, our hearts outward once again, at least some of you in here were just like, what? Serious? Marriage? Really? Marriage is something? Uh, um, isn't marriage the, the place, like one of the primary places where you see so much relational brokenness into the world today like how does God use that to help fix the relational brokenness that we have like uh, I I think you you've misunderstood here well you know what that's a great question it's a great point actually and and I'm I'm so glad you asked because we're going to address it here on the surface and and certainly given its placement before the fall where we see marriage uh, being brought into the creative order Because of where it's placed, we might be tempted to respond to someone who says that by saying, well, okay, listen, God intended marriage to be this beautiful, curve-reshaping thing. That's how he originally designed it. That's how it started out. It's just that, you know, we messed up. We brought sin into the world, and so now, you know, it just doesn't work the same way that it used to. The tool is good. It just doesn't work the same way anymore. And, And you know what? There's actually a lot of truth to that statement. It's just that there's also a lot missing from it as well. Not least of which the countless other places that we have in God's word after the fall in Genesis 3, but marriage is still presented even by Jesus himself as this beautiful curve reshaping relationship between a man and a woman, something the Apostle Paul says even helps us understand the relationship of Jesus to his church. Which means that marriage, at least as far as the Bible is concerned, has to be more than just this historical pre-fall artifact in a museum pointing us to what could have been. And I'm convinced, hear me, I'm convinced what it also means is that maybe, just maybe, God designed the marriage relationship with the brokenness that was yet to occur already in mind. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to just Work through this passage. Try to get an understanding of how it is that God designed marriage. And maybe my hope is that you'll be convinced of that too. So look back, first of all, with me at verse 18. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. What you'll see there is something I referred to briefly last week. That moment in God's creation of the world and everything in it, where after a stream of goods, oh, this is good. God saw that it was good. We get the very first not good that God speaks over his creation. Namely, it says, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, as I said last week, one of the things this clearly reveals to us is the relational character of God. Because if, if God was not relational, then there would be no problem with the man made in God's image and likeness being alone. And yet God says, no, no, this is not good. I see this as not good. And if you remember what I also mentioned about the very good that God speaks over his creation back in chapter 1, verse 31. You remember I said that was not only an expression of God's joy over what he'd made, but also an expression of its completeness. So put this all together. It means when God says it is not good for the man to be alone, what he's not saying is, oh, I messed up on this model. Erase, we need to start again. What he's saying is, is this part of my creation isn't complete yet. It is not yet complete, which I don't mean in some kind of like Jerry Maguire, like, you complete me. I don't mean it like that. I mean it in the sense of like he's saying God's design for humanity is relational. I haven't finished yet. It's not complete yet. And both men and women are needed in order to reflect my relational design in all its fullness. That's what he means when he says this is not good. It's not complete yet. And so in order to bring it to completion, second half of verse 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, as we all so noted last week, I know many of us, we bristle at that term helper. We're just, excuse me, helper? I am not the helper. Excuse me, no. Um, This word in the Hebrew, it it means nothing like servant. It means nothing like fetch my coffee, do my laundry. It means nothing like that, actually. In fact, Jesus uses this term helper in John 14 to refer specifically to the Holy Spirit. He is referred to as the helper. And again, as commentator Gordon Wenham notes, helper implies neither the strength nor the weakness of the helper, but rather the inadequacy or the inability of the one being helped to accomplish what they've been assigned to do on their own. In fact, this term is very often used in military contexts where an ally has to come in and help win a battle that is otherwise unwinnable. What we have in the next verses, uh, starting out in verse 19, it looks almost like a pause or or a break in the action. All of a sudden we see this scene where God's bringing all these animals to Adam and he's naming them, but then it ends on a super weird note at the end of verse 20 there, where it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Which most of us are like, oh yeah, right, (laughs) Um, because... Yeah, I, I'd like to think you couldn't find a suitable helper with chickens and livestock. That just seems like, I mean, I know a dog is supposed to be man's best friend, but no. Uh, uh, that's, we're not going to say dogs are, are co-reflectors of the image of God. So yes, no suitable helper is, is found there. But interestingly, what commentators note on this very weird-sounding verse is that the point of the exercise wasn't intended to actually find a helper matching Adam but to deepen the desire and longing within the man to find one. Which leads to then that glorious part, that glorious moment in verse 22, look with me there, where, where the father, uh, like the father of a bride, he, he presents, he brings in the woman to the man one day and he immediately breaks into this poetry. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That word now in the first Line of the poem has the sense in Hebrew of, at last! Oh, finally! Uh, It's as though, as one pastor noted, as Adam is naming all the animals as they're brought to him, what he's saying is, not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. And then one day, God brings the woman to Adam and he just rejoices Woo! At last! Oh, this one is just like me. She is perfectly fit for me. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The two are then united together before God in verse 24, the very first marriage ceremony in history. And this joining is said to be of such strength and importance in that commentary in verse 24 that it leads us to leave our father and mother which doesn't mean a whole lot necessarily in our modern-day context, but in an ancient Near Eastern context, this would have been unthinkable because married couples often moved back in with their families into the family home after they were married. And then again, as I know, it sounds, we're like, whoa, that sounds negative. And that was a good thing for them. Um, and then again, as verse 25 summarizes, they, they have this beautiful transparent knowing of one another Uh, expressed by their nakedness, which is completely free from shame at this point. It's just the pinnacle of relational design that God has put forward. But as we think about what this means for us today and how it is that God uses marriage in particular to reshape the inward-facing curvature of our hearts back outward once again, I want to focus specifically in on that verse 24. So go back there and look with me. Now, don't worry, we're going to get to the one flesh stuff in a few weeks, and no, I'm not going to pass it off on Kent. Uh, Don't let him use that line, it says I always give him the hard passages. (laughs) We're going to talk about the one flesh stuff in in a couple of weeks, but what I want to focus on is that language where he talks about the man and the woman being united to one another before God. Uh, uh, What the King James would translate as cleaving unto one another or holding fast. To one another, because this concept of making vows to one another, making covenant promises to one another before God is actually the thing that distinguishes marriage from any and every other relationship of its kind. This is what makes it so unique. Now, listen, we are undeniably far removed from when this passage was written, and even farther removed from when it actually took place historically. I'm sure it's not gonna come as a surprise to any of you here. to to say that marriage today, particularly in Western culture, has become something we view with an increasingly cynical viewpoint as well as an increasingly shallow viewpoint. Marriage is, is, we look at something like this and it seems removed from so much of what we understand marriage to be. And for many of us today, as Tim Keller notes so well in his fantastic book, The Meaning of Marriage, this comes as a result of having entirely too low of a view of marriage or an unrealistically high view of marriage. That's the reason why we don't see marriage the same way today. Now, the low or the lower view of marriage began to emerge, Keller says, especially during the Enlightenment era, when, quote, the meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. What does that sound like? inward curved. It's about me. And this is just the air that we breathe now, isn't it? This is what it looks like in our culture. And so as that applies to marriage then, he goes on, in short, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefining its purpose as individual gratification. The purpose of marriage is about me and me being fulfilled. That's the view of our culture, predominantly, even in Christian circles. We are not immune from this. Thus, the biblical view of marriage, <laughs> yeah, which restricts you to, to one sexual partner for the rest of your life. What? Which, which, as we're looking at here, is marriage is designed to reshape and, and reform the inward curved nature of our heart. It means marriage was designed to change you. It was designed to change you you need to be changed so obviously that comes in direct conflict with this enlightenment era thinking causing marriage to appear uh, outdated regressive overly restrictive of my freedom something that's to be avoided for as long as possible or that we should discard the moment it no longer brings us fulfillment but on the other side the unrealistically high view of marriage which is also born in this enlightenment era, is no less damaging because now here, the marriage partner, this one you're seeking out, is seen as the one sole hope for achieving that fulfillment. They're the ones that bring my completeness. If I can just find that right person, they're going to bring about the completeness and the fulfillment that I need for myself. It's, it is, I'm sorry to tell you, it is searching for the unicorn, and it is actually setting your marriage up for failure before it even begins. Why? Because no human being, flawed, imperfect as we are, however perfect it might seem at the beginning, could ever live up to the expectation, could ever bear the weight of that expectation to be the one sole thing that brings fulfillment to your life. It could never do it. In fact, the way God designed it and set it up is that only He is the one that can ultimately bear the weight of that expectation. Thus, over time, the idealized partner is either crushed under the weight of expectation or more often than not, the shine wears off and the unrealistic spouse simply comes to believe, I I guess I married the wrong person. You're not fulfilling me anymore. I guess I got to find the right person. I got to find who my true soulmate is. And yet... Stanley Haraway's professor of ethics at Duke University powerfully observed and this is just such a money quote destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and family are primarily institutions for personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy the assumption that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough we'll find that right person this moral assumption he says overlooks the crucial uh, an aspect crucial to marriage it fails to appreciate that we always marry the wrong person. He goes on, we never know whom we marry, we just think we do. For marriage, uh, uh, or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we're not the same person after we've entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you now find yourself marrying. people said (laughs) Uh, but but see now yes as as Keller goes on to mention uh, and comment on this yes sometimes there are people who are really really the wrong person to marry Uh, yeah that that is the case Uh, sometimes maybe the person is just far too uh, far older than you far younger maybe you don't share the same faith you don't share the same language there's all kinds of things that would make that like yeah that's actually the wrong person to to seek out but the fact remains that everyone else is still or will become incompatible. Everyone. There is no right person out there to find. But this is also what makes biblical marriage such a powerful tool to reshape the inward curve natures of our heart back towards one another. How? Because, as I mentioned earlier, because it's united by a covenant promise. It's united by this covenant promise that holds you together through sickness and health, through wealth or poverty, all these things we vow to each other uh, in our wedding ceremonies. But according to this quote, it's also the thing that holds you together through the multiple transitions between compatibility and incompatibility, which inevitably come for both of you. It's the thing that holds you together through all of those seasons. And come on, if you've If you've ever lived with someone before, if you've ever lived with roommates, whatever it is, you know that sharing the same living space, boy, that's like like the primary space that's going to expose your flaws as well as highlight the flaws of everybody else as well. It's just like a a massive spotlight comes in on all the ways that you screw up and other people screw up. It's just shining it in on there. The difference is that whether we're talking about Uh, having a roommate, uh, living even with a romantic partner, whatever it is, that arrangement always is set up as a consumer agreement. In those relationships, in those living situations, it's a consumer agreement. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here with you as long as this remains fulfilling. The moment that uh, I start to be not satisfied or maybe a better product is offered to me, I can leave. I can get out at at any time. And although this appears to be like freedom, actually, when you look at it under the surface, it's actually incredibly limiting, incredibly unstable. You've got no promise that this person will be here tomorrow if you can't keep up being that fulfilling person for them. It's only in marriage where the covenant promise offers you actual freedom to both be as well as to become who you truly are with the safety of knowing you're not going to be abandoned, you're not going to be traded in in the middle of the process. Which is ultimately why, although marriage is undoubtedly the place where our self-focused inward natures uh, uh, come into the sharpest contrast with one another, it does, and, and that's why we see so much relational breakdown in marriage. It also becomes one of God's best tools to help reshape us. Marriage, as Keller says, is not designed to bring you so much into confrontation with your spouse. It's designed to bring you into confrontation with yourself. It's because marriage has the power to both expose your hidden flaws, all the stuff that's true about you but you just never saw or didn't want to look at, Man, it's going to shine a spotlight on all those cracks in a way that you you never saw before in your own life when you get married. Uh, I've said this, I haven't done a whole lot of marriage counseling, but when I have uh, premarital counseling, I've said marriage is not going to fix the deficiencies in your relationship. It's going to make them bigger. But the difference is that it exposes the flaws within the safety of a covenant promise that says, I'm here no matter what. I promise before god to stick with you whether we're in a season of compatibility or whether we're in a season where we seem as incompatible as possible i'm here i'm not going anywhere that's the thing that holds you together when the feelings when the infatuation eventually fade when the shine wears off when your spouse seems as incompatible as possible that's the thing that holds you together and if you've heard me talk uh, any of these over the years about my own marriage. It's the, it's the reason that my wife and I are still married t- today. The promise was the thing that held us when we couldn't hold ourselves. The point is, it's only in the place of safety created by the promise that marriage does have the power to begin reshaping the inward curved nature of our heart once again. Because there's safety and freedom now for the process to take place. It's the only place it happens. Now there's so, so much more that we could say about marriage. And we're definitely going to touch on some more of these aspects in the coming weeks. But that is something this morning of how God uses marriage to begin curving us back towards one another. But as we close this morning, I want to also talk about how God uses marriage to help curve us back towards himself. So let's talk last day about marriage and curving back towards God. Marriage and curving back towards God. And while there's certainly implications that you can see of this in our passage in Genesis 2, where this idea is highlighted uh, much more clearly and directly is in the passage we read in Ephesians 5. This is one of the classic texts on marriage from the New Testament perspective given to us by the Apostle Paul. There, in trying to show us the connection between marriage and the inward curve of our hearts, curving it back towards God, Paul actually, we, I don't know if you heard this, he actually quotes verse 24 of Genesis 2, there in verse 31. Look with me now to Ephesians 5. If you want to flip over there, 829 is the Pew Bible page, beginning at verse 31. Paul says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, in the preceding verses 22 to 30, Paul has written this much more detailed description that we're going to look at in the coming weeks of how it is that God's designed for our unique reflections of his image— come together with men and women in order to uh, make marriage a place that we complement one another as God intended us in that relational design. But when Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 and then goes on to say this is a profound mystery in verse 32, although our immediate assumption is that he's still talking about marriage between a man and a woman, as you see, he goes on to say, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Which makes most of us just kind of go... You know, record scratching across the thing sound. What? Okay. A man leaving his father and mother, being united unto his wife, and the two become one flesh, that that's describing Christ and his church. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that yes, something about Paul's description in those previous verses that we're gonna look at in a few weeks about how Jesus They're describing also how Jesus relates to his church, not just how a husband and wife relate to each other. But when you consider the placement of what he says, it seems to say that this commentary about a husband's loving pursuit of his bride, causing him to leave his father and mother, and uniting himself to her in covenant faithfulness, joining himself to her in the most intimate of ways, that that idea in particular has direct relevance to the way Jesus relates to us as his church. I don't know if you've ever considered this before. How so? How? Well, if you look at something Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, just before he went to the cross to bear the curse of sin in our place, the ultimate act of leaving his Father and lovingly pursuing us, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God trust also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so I would have told you I am going there to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am now in our cultural context that means almost nothing we're like that's nice it's comforting in fact if you look at this in the, the 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 title over it says Jesus comforts his disciples, okay? So he's comforting them because he's about to go to the cross, he's going away. In fact, if you've heard this passage at all, most times you hear it in the context of what? Funerals. You often hear this passage spoken of in funerals. But in Jesus' day, those words that he spoke are actually part of a Jewish wedding custom. The bridegroom would speak this over his bride when they became betrothed, when they became Promised to one another in marriage and although they had not yet had a wedding ceremony that was still to come both were now considered married to one another in every sense of the law after this betrothal took place and by this blessing the bridegroom literally meant i'm going to go to my father's house i'm going to build onto it i'm going to prepare a place so that we can go and live with my family once we are united after the marriage ceremonies take place but consider this uh, If you know the context, when Jesus is saying this, this isn't a wedding ceremony. This is the Passover supper that he's giving right before he goes to the cross. That's the context of where he's doing it. So by speaking a wedding blessing over his disciples, as well as I think by implication, everyone who would follow Jesus after them. Jesus is making a covenant promise to us as his church. His church, that that gathering of God's people referred to in numerous New Testament writers as the bride of Christ, which I know, I get it. That's that's hard to get our minds around, particularly if you're a dude, we're just like, I don't like being called the bride of Jesus, that sounds weird. I just say, you know what, if women got to deal with being called sons of God, we can deal with being called the bride of Christ. All right, let's just move on. It, It means, Jesus is saying, there's something about the relationship between a a man and a woman, this marriage relationship that's actually pointing to a far greater reality. A, a, A curve reshaping relationship that Jesus intends to have directly with us as his church. That's what he's saying. And the message of the Bible is that in leaving his father and coming to earth, Jesus paid the price in full for our betrothal to him and his death on the cross. And as we unite ourselves to him In faith, we are now his bride, awaiting that day that we read about in Revelation when he comes and returns to at last bring us to our father's house for all time and in all eternity. It is not good for the man to be alone. That's that's where we started this morning, and by God's grace where we end is in seeing the truth that in the coming of Jesus we have a promise at last fulfilled that we never have to be. We never have to be. Now some of us have experienced or some of us will one day experience an earthly relationship that pictures our union with Christ. But what we learn through the gospel message here is that the fullness of God's design for marriage to reshape the inward curve of our hearts is something that our earthly marriages only point towards. They're just pointing at. They're saying, this is what it's like. Just a small shadow of it. This is why if you're single here this morning, this is so significant to you as well, because what this means is that the fullness of God's design in marriage to reshape the inward curve of our hearts is something that can be experienced by all who are united to Jesus by faith regardless of whether you experience the earthly picture or not. You can experience the fullness of what God designed for us relationally, regardless of whether you experience the earthly picture or not. For exactly like we saw with the earthly picture, this marriage to Jesus also reshapes the inward curve of our hearts as it exposes our sinful nature, our our self-focused nature. But that loving Reshaping exposure also takes place within the safety of his covenant promise to us. Never to leave or to forsake the bride for which he died.